Thank you. Thank you, folks. Uh, Michael, if you could grab some, a couple of people to help you and just give out those um, sheets. Oh, brilliant, Andy, thanks. Give out those sheets. There's a sheet coming out for this morning. And uh, I'm just going to grab something from here. And then I'm going to switch on to this other mic, Claire, if that's all right. Uh, no, we don't need the screen anymore. Oh, do you have my PowerPoint from... Oh, you do? Oh, wow. There isn't anywhere to move forward to. If you can't see the screen and you'd like to... This is a penance for those of you who sit at the back all the time. Every now and then, you just have to come and sit at the front. <laughs> I've actually only got a few PowerPoint slides to show you, not very many, just at the start of the talk this morning. Um, so you probably won't need them. But what you will need is one of these sheets. Switching on to here. Is that all right? Great. Thank you. Wonderful. Well, it's great to see you again. And um, those of you who've been coming regularly and will have heard me talking uh, and teaching through the book of Romans, which we've been doing now for some weeks. Uh, can you put the first slide up for me? Thanks, mate. Um, I have talked about how it is a little bit like a mountain. It's been like climbing a mountain. And last week we reached the summit of the mountain when we got to the beginning of chapter 12. And there's a sort of little diagram on the top of your, um, on top of your sheet, uh, which kind of uh, t- talks about this. Just put the next one up for me. Um, I'll tell you what, if I go click, how's that? <laughs> Virtual clicking, that's amazing. Um, And uh, you can see this word here, therefore, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. The pinnacle of the mountain, that is Romans, that we've been uh, climbing. I don't know if you've ever climbed a mountain. Um, You know, it's pretty hard work. Um, When you get to the top, hopefully, if the weather's good, you'll get an amazing view. Um, And then what happens? Usually you have to rush your lunch and then start going back down again, don't you? And um, I is it any easier walking down a mountain than up? Not really, is it? I mean, it, you, you, the point here is you have to take care walking down the mountain. You still have to stay awake and alert about where you're putting your feet, don't you? Otherwise, you're going to come into difficulty. And it, I, I would argue that it is marginally easier to walk down a mountain because you're not fighting against gravity, which is what you have been doing on the way up. And so every step you take down is taken in the context. You've only taken that step down because you've taken the step up, because you've climbed up previously. And I think that's a really good little analogy. I'm not going to stretch it too far, but that's a good little analogy for where we're at here. Because the rest of the book of Romans talks about how we live in the light of the gospel. In the light of chapters 1 to 11 and all of that kind of quite dense and quite intense argument that Paul has laid out verse by verse, chapter by chapter, question by question, Paul with his scholarly, he was kind of like a trained lawyer. So he, he, he was used to you know, having logical arguments and that's what he's done. And that whole sort of mountain journey, the, what, chapters 1 to 11, I, I am going to keep referring back to it and I'm going to refer back to it as the gospel because that's what it is. And you can only, I think it's easier to take a step downwards because of the work that you've done climbing up. That doesn't mean you can just do it without thinking, otherwise you'll fall head over heels and guess what? Break your leg or something. But, but it's easier because you've already done the work. And because of the gospel, how we live is really important. And that's what the next whole, that's what the next whole section is about. And today I'm going to read the whole of chapter 12. Now I know I read part of chapter 12 last week, and I mainly talked about the first couple of verses. But I want to kind of revisit that. Um, no, I don't want to revisit it, but I do want to read it because it's important for the context. So if you've got a Bible with you or a Bible accessed on your phone or your iPad or something, we're going to read the whole of chapter 12, and I'm going to read from the NIV. That's verses 1 
to 21. Okay, And then what I want to do is briefly recap on the first couple of verses, briefly touch on verses 3 to 8, and then spend most of my time focusing on 9 to 21, the, the section on love. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual, or we said last week, a really good, um, a really good better translation of that would be logical. This is your spiritual, logical act of worship. Verse 2, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment and in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it's serving, let him serve. If it's teaching, let him teach. If it's encouraging, let him encourage. And if it's contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it's leadership, let him govern diligently. If it's showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. Verse 9, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil and cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honour one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervour, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everybody. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I don't know if you have watched the news of the last week or two. I've been watching uh, quite interesting, uh, not really this week, but the week before, but there have been some reflections on it, what was going on with the... um, the meeting of the Anglican bishops. They call them primates, which is an unfortunate name, isn't it? But the, the sort of archbishops and leaders of the, of the, of the world. Um, I was, uh, and what was really interesting was reading what was going on, what the commentators were saying, what the newspapers were saying, what everyone seemed to be saying as they went into that meeting, which was potentially, potentially massively divisive. And what I loved about it, and I've read um, Justin Welby's reflections on it and one or two other people's reflections on, on that week as well, and obviously they were able to come to a place where they were able to put out a, un- a, a virtually united agreement, and nobody expected that that would happen. And Welby was brilliant. He said, um, I had, first of all, he said, I had everyone praying. There was a lot of prayer went into this meeting. And, and, and what I loved about him was that he said... Um, I, uh, <laughs> What you all think is the issue isn't the issue. 
Okay, what everybody thinks is the issue is how we deal with marriage. Well, we said, no, that's not the issue. The issue is how we deal with one another in the light of the fact that we don't agree about this. And he, he maintained that that was what it was all about, that the gospel and love and unity is more important than having a fight about the issues. Now, they're going to have some discussions, some further discussions, sure. But I love that, that he made that the priority. And as I was thinking about that yesterday and I was up in the prayer room, uh, you know, we had these 24 hours of, of prayer and um, I was just sitting in front of a very simple cross and some pictures of Jesus and there was a thing that said, just reflect on Jesus and, and worship him, which I was doing and I, was, I got to thinking back to all of this stuff and all of Romans and the phrase came to me, love wins the day. Love wins the day. There's nothing more powerful more important and more close to the heart of God than love, than real love. And that's what this is about. So we talked last week about what it was to be a living sacrifice. I've kind of done a a quick recap for you. If you just pop the next one up for me. Thanks, Charlie. Um, I said that there were three three things uh, here in verses 1 and 2. To reflect on God's mercy, to respond logically to God's incredible grace, and to keep being renewed in our mind by being... Not conformed, but transformed. I'm not going to go into that again. I looked at that last week. I said, this is, this is the pattern. This is a summary of what it is to follow Jesus. It's the only logical response to this incredible gospel message. So one of the key questions we have is, how do we work this out in practice? What does it look like to respond to God's grace and love by allowing ourselves not to be conformed like everyone in culture, but actually be transformed little by little, changed into Somebody who looks like, and acts like, and talks like, and smells like Jesus. A gospel person. And there are many contexts in our lives in which that, in which that applies. And last week I also encouraged us to think about our own involvement in this church. I said if we're called to live differently from, around, from those around us, and putting our faith in Jesus who saves, and living such that others might do the same, then... Actually, that's what our vision is here. Can you take the next one for me? And I've reproduced again on your, on your sheet, just the, the, that statement of vision, you probably can't read it on here, but it's on your sheet. And what it is that we believe that God is calling us to do and be here. We believe that we are called to be a gospel people who are living out what it is to be like Jesus and letting that influence every situation and every context and every community and every relationship that we're in. That doesn't just mean that we come to church on Sunday and have a great time. Although we do have a great time and we love coming to church. It means it starts here and it goes everywhere. And that's what God is calling us to do here at at Winchester Vineyard. We are called to be an organisation that's more interested in the people who aren't here than the people who are. And I said last week as well, just one more uh, click for me and then you can be done with this. Thanks, Charlie. That... There are four ways in which we live that out, one more, Um, and and I call that functional membership. And if you're part of this church, and if you're called to be here, if you know that God has said this is your spiritual home, okay, then there are four practical things that you do, that I encourage you to do, to express that. We don't ask you to sign anything, we don't ask you to pledge anything, we just ask you to do some things. And the four things are to reflect, to, wrong four things, Um, to come on Sunday, and worship with us, to join a life group, which Chris has already talked about this morning, um, to join a making it happen team, 
I invited you to consider last week whether you're here as a guest or a host. And if you're a guest here, welcome. I hope you've been welcomed well. It's one of the questions Joe and I always ask um, people who are, who are new to the church. We say, how was your welcome? How, how did you find it when you first came here? Because I know people who go to churches, sometimes to this church, and they say, well, it was, re- it was a lovely church, but nobody talked to me. Now, luckily, I haven't heard that here for quite a while, but I don't want to get complacent about it. But if you're a guest here, then you're very welcome. And as soon as you've decided that this is a place to stay, then stop being a guest and start being a host. Join one of our teams and help to make it happen. Help help to make church happen. We are not a place where 20% of the people do 80% of the work. We're not that. I'm aiming aiming to switch that round. I'm not even aiming for that. I'm not aiming for 80%. I'm aiming for 100%. Functional membership, where we're all involved in making church happen on a Sunday or during the week. You know, maybe God is asking you to get involved in one of our teams to make church welcoming for some more guests who are yet to come here, but who Jesus wants to bring so that they can meet him and, in, and be encouraged and inspired by the gospel too. I mean, haven't we just had the most incredible time of worship? Wouldn't you want other people to have that opportunity? So we can do that. We can do that by putting out coffee and putting out chairs. We can do that by serving our youth and our children and leading them. You know, we, we've got... We need people in spot. I was talking to Stephen this week. Now, we don't do this. I don't do arm twisting, and I don't do, we're in need. But actually, the reality is we have 15 spaces to fill in our kids and youth rotor at the minute. So, this is not an arm twist. This is a simple opportunity. If you're not yet serving, and that's a way that you have experience or gifting, would you come talk to us afterwards if you think that God is inviting you to be part of that team? Or you can get involved during the week in our storehouse ministry, our big fish. We've talked about that recently. Stuff that engages with local people. Maybe you can be one of our people who just comes and volunteers and helps us do some admin. Or helps us um, keep, keep tabs on some of the practical stuff around our venue. Whatever your skill is, there is a role to play here in the church. I make no apology for doing this again, by the way. I won't, I won't keep going on about it, but I just thought it was worth coming back over one more time. And lastly, if you're a member here, we expect you and invite you and encourage you to give your money and to gift aid if you pay tax. This is a generous church. You are generous worshippers. Thank you for your generosity. And I invited us last week to just to reflect on our own giving to the church in the light of the fact that, as I mentioned, we've set a budget this year which is um, significantly above the income that we've ever had over the last four or five years. We've had a consistent income for which we've been incredibly grateful, but we just think the Lord wants to do more. We, we, we think the Lord wants to do more, and so based on that and what we think we need, we've set a higher budget. And if you are part of this church and you haven't yet had an opportunity to give uh, regularly or consistently to the work of what God's doing here, then I'm inviting you again just to consider that today. There are some giving uh, forms and envelopes on the welcome desk. We're working on a way pretty soon, hopefully, where we can do it all online through that through church app that Chris was um, describing earlier. That's not up and running yet, but we're working on that. Um, but I do invite you to be part of sowing into what God is doing in this church. And if you already do that, but you haven't reviewed your giving lately, then I invite you to think about that. Not to have an, Again, not for me to twist anybody's arm, Um, just to, in the light of God's generosity to us, consider how we can be generous in our finances too. You can shut that down now, that's fine. Thank you, I'm I'm done with that. Um, That's just a little recap of last week. And uh, I can see you've all gone, smile, it's not that bad. (laughs) 
that's functional membership. Let's move on to the next section. You see, I, I kind of snuck that in here under the heading humble service in the body of Christ. And, and Paul's emphasis is humble service in the body of Christ. And my emphasis is humble service in the body of Christ. Do you get me? That's gone over most people's heads. Okay. Um, you see, what Paul does is he teaches here that each of us are gifted uniquely. That we all have different skills to bring. To bring. All, all have strength, different strengths to bear. And th- Paul teaches this here and he teaches it in another couple of letters too. In fact, I'm not going to again go into lots of detail. He talks, for example, about people who prophesy. People who speak out the word of God. Now we have an opportunity for Eric to share this morning. Maybe that was a word from God. We don't know. We'll find out afterwards. Maybe there, you know, there are people who are gifted in hearing what God is saying and then sharing it. That's the gift of prophecy. Paul also talks about some much more supposedly practical or mundane gifts like serving, which I've just been talking about now. He talks about teaching, about encouragement. He talks about giving, actually, and about leading. And the point here is not those specifics of which gift is yours and how has God gifted you and what skills do you have. The point here is all about the character of the person. You see, in verse 3, Paul says very clearly... um, for it's by grace given to me. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. Instead, think of yourself with sober judgment. And one of the problems that was going on in the Roman church, and actually, if you, by inference, it was probably going on in most of the churches Paul wrote to, certainly in the Corinthian church, was that whilst these believers seemed to be having an amazing time encountering God and an amazing time sort of moving in the gifts of the Spirit, they were, you know, they were seeing miracles happen, they were praying for people and people were getting healed. They were giving words out, a bit like that one this morning, and they were being accurate. God was using them. And that's a That's a buzz. That's powerful. Um, But the problem was that in these churches, the people who were giving these gifts and using these gifts, their character wasn't developing at the same pace. So the gifts were there, but not always the character. And that's why Paul's going into this stuff. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. Some people thought because they had the gift of prophecy, they were just a little bit more special than everybody else. Some people think because they teach from a platform like this or they can play the guitar in a certain way, that kind of gives them a badge to wear that's in any, that kind of adds some sort of special value to them. You're all looking at me like, what? It's true. It's true. It happens. Maybe it doesn't happen here very much. I don't know. I don't hear about it very much. But this was going on. It must have been going on because Paul had to write to various churches about it. Imagine if someone who stands up like me to preach or teach suddenly thinks that their job is any more powerful or more valuable than the guy who welcomed people outside in the car park or made the coffee this morning. Imagine if someone who has incredible faith like um, Lynn here who prays for people and sees God do amazing things suddenly thinks that that makes them any more special than the person who comes and works on the admin desk at the computer just helping to make things happen. Imagine if that happened. It's not right and that's what Paul's addressing here. I think actually it's one of God's big headaches, his big challenges. He really wants to give his gifts, and I think he probably scratches his head and thinks, I don't know, can they handle it? Can they handle it? I mean, imagine if some of you, some of you love to pray. Imagine, imagine if one of you prayed and actually saw a dead person get up to life. Could you handle the character needed when that happened? Or would it go to your head? Or mine? Or mine? 
I reckon God's up there scratching his head going, do I release the gifts because they'll bring glory to me and help people encounter Jesus? Or do I hold them back because I know that my people can't, aren't quite ready to handle it, maturity? Can, can you imagine what that's like? And Paul sets this context as you sober judgment. Be serious and be calm about the way that you view yourself. It reminds me of when Jesus sent out his followers in Luke 10. He sends them all out. They go off and do these amazing things. They come back. It says the 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, it was amazing. It was fantastic. You should have seen it. Even the demons submit to us in your name. And Jesus is like, yeah, that's great. Good one, guys. But don't rejoice about that. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In other words, Jesus is saying it's not about your gifting. It's about knowing your identity. It's about knowing who you are. It's about knowing that and acting out of that as a, as a place of character. There's an encouragement to grow in character, and that's what Paul's talking about here. Don't spout prophecy, he's saying, just to make yourself look good or feel good. Do it in accordance with your faith. In other words, your faith means that you can only access God through Jesus That compared to everybody else, we're just the same. Jesus had to do everything for us. Let's just bear that in mind as we exercise whatever gifts he's given us. If you're called to give, then give generously, Paul says. Out of a grateful and a glad heart. Not grudgingly or kind of, you know, to solve your conscience or something. Because you happen to have got a great job that means you're going to earn loads more money. Generously as an act of faith. If you're called to lead, Paul says, do it diligently. Not just as you feel like or just to look good, but consistently and fairly to the best of your ability. It's worth saying this again. In view of the gospel and all that Jesus has done for you on that journey up the mountain, Paul says, when you meet together as a community of believers, it's not about what you do, it's about how you do it. There's an old song, isn't there? There It ain't what you do, it's the way that you do it. And that leads us really nicely onto this last section, love in action from verse 9. There's some really good stuff in here on the nature of love. The key verse here is is verse 9, actually, where Paul gives three very clear imperatives, very clear instructions. He says, number one, love must be sincere. And, And sincere means unhypocritical. It means real, not pretend, not fake, not a mask, not something other than it purports to be real. He says, love what must be sincere, hate what is evil, hate, literally, be horrified by, and cling to, or be glued to, what is good. Why does, make, why does Paul make this point so clearly and so firmly? The truth is, when we love someone, it can distort our view of what is good and evil. It is possible to be blinded by love or blinded by emotions so much that we actually don't see things as they really are. It must be so, otherwise so many people wouldn't stay in relationships with people who are abusing them. But they do. Either physically or emotionally or spiritually. It's a common challenge in parenting. Now, I don't know about you, But it's normal that most young people near me will push boundaries and behave in ways that are sometimes wrong. I try not to use the word evil around my children. Sometimes their behaviour is just wrong. 
and needs confronting. And as a parent, and those of you who are parents or have been parents in the past will know this, loving your child in such a way as you can consistently discipline bad behaviour can be really taxing. It can be really hard because often they react badly to you with tears and tantrums and anger. The temptation's often there just to let things go because it makes you feel better because you don't want the grief of their emotion and their pain. And yet all the experts tell us that almost certainly that will end in trouble if we don't parent consistently. It's tough in parenting, but it's kind of what goes along with the job. It's even harder to do this in peer-to-peer relationships and friendships, isn't it? And that's the kind of love that Paul's talking about. You see, a selfish love is one that avoids all possible risk. Says, I won't confront that behaviour, even though I know it to be evil or wrong. That's the behaviour, not the person. Because I will risk losing that person's affection. In fact, I'll do anything I can to keep him or her. And that's loving to get, not loving to give. Can you see what I'm saying? That's love that cuts moral corners. Whereas real love, Paul says, it doesn't pander to emotions, it actually confronts with truth. It loves what is good and it hates what is evil and it deals in reality. It's even willing to risk losing the other person's affection for a while if there's a chance of getting a breakthrough, if there's a chance of getting some help. Now that's challenging. As, um, as pastors, we sometimes have to deal with this in our, in our sort of everyday work. You know, it's, it's tough. In church, we try and be a church that's accepting and friendly and loving to everyone because that's how Jesus is. But there are some people who, for various reasons, take advantage of that and, don't, and cross over all sorts of boundaries and do things that it's just not appropriate or helpful or kind or loving to do. And sometimes we have to be the people who say to that person, I'm sorry, but no, you can't do that here. This is not okay. It's not fun to be that person, but it is loving if we do it in the right way. And Jesus is our model for this. He deals in reality. He doesn't play games. It is possible to love. And there are some practical... No, I'm just going to go back on that. Jesus is our model for love. And he's also the answer to our other question, which is how is it possible to love people who are simply unlovable or just don't seem very nice or lovely. And the answer to that is with the gospel in mind. As we repent for our own sin and the things that we've done wrong, including not being able to love those who God loves, our hearts are softened. As we think back to the sacrifices that God's made on our behalf, that's what enables us to love those who are hard to love. So as I said, it all comes back to what God's done for us. Jesus' love expressed in the reality of the gospel is the key to everything. It isn't possible to love unlovely people unless we understand the gospel of Jesus. It isn't possible. It certainly isn't possible to do it just by being a nice person. It's all about his example. And there are some practical exhortations. I love that word, exhortations. It's sort of like somewhere between an encouragement and a command. Okay? It's like, you must do this. You must do this in love. In, chapter, in verses 10 to 16, if you've got a pencil or a pen, you might want to do this. Just, just underline some of them. What I've done is I've kind of organised, there's about 10 or 12 statements there 
You know, be devoted to one another, honour one another, um, be joyful, all of that stuff. And what I've done is reorganised them under four kind of key headings. One is that real love is doggedly committed. Be devoted to one another in love. And the love word there is brotherly love. Like as if you were related. That's what he's talking about. You know, now I don't know how it is with your family. Some families... You know, in some cultures, the family is a big value. In some cultures, it's less of a value. I've heard people say stuff like, I would do anything for a member of my family. Well, they're family. I don't know if we always get that in our culture. Because we haven't got that sort of more traditional view of family. Devoted could be a challenge for those of us who've been raised in an individualistic culture. You know, I'll be devoted to a certain point, and then when it gets tough, I'll just back away and say, oh, well, they're nothing to do with me. Paul says, no, this is like somebody who's part of your family. This is brotherly love. Real love is doggedly and devotedly committed to people. Real love puts others first. Paul says, honour one another above yourself. So you have, we have to see the image of God in every other person. Every person that we engage with is created uniquely by God. And loved uniquely by their Heavenly Father. They may not know it yet. They may certainly not act like it. But that is the truth. And it isn't always easy to express our love to them when they do stuff that just really winds us up. But that's what real love does. It puts others first. It honours others above ourselves. You know, it said, I've already read it in verse 3. Don't think of ourselves as lower. Sorry, it says, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. I ought to say, it, it doesn't say, think of yourself as lower than everybody else. It doesn't say that. It just says, put others first. And don't put yourself above others. So we're kind of, what the, how it works is we're equal to all of others who are in Christ. Because in Christ, we're all the same anyway. So practically what that means is don't be proud. And don't be conceited, that's what Paul's talking about. That's a challenge. See, real love is patient. Real love is patient and doesn't give up on people. You see, love is involving people. We're involved in people and their lives. And people can be hard work, can't they? Say, yes, Nigel. C.S. Lewis said, the only way to be sure not to have your heart broken is never to give it to anyone. And, he's not, and we're not just talking about romance here. You know, you share your heart with someone. You share your deepest self with them. We all have relationships at a close level. Perhaps not too many, but some. And perhaps what's happened is we've given our heart to people. We've shared something with them. And then for whatever reason, it hasn't been reciprocated or something's happened. And we've stopped doing that. Real love is patient. There are five different phrases here. Be joyful in hope. Be patient in affliction. Be faithful in prayer. Don't lack zeal. Bless and do not curse people. That's a challenge, isn't it? I mean, just think about that. Think about your worst enemy. Think about somebody you just frankly could do without having in your life right now. Hopefully that doesn't come too easy to you. If it does... You need to do some praying. (laughs) But think about that. And then think about what it is to bless them, not curse them. 
to pray for them, to be patient with them. Think about the person who's causing you the most stress or frustration right now. If it's me, don't think about me. (laughs) No, no, if it is me, pray for me. (laughs) And real love combines feeling with action. It empathises with those who are struggling. It says rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. Essentially, feel what others are feeling and put your money where your mouth is. It says share with the Lord's people who are in need and practice hospitality. The call is to share our homes, our money, our resources, our stuff. Oh yeah, well I could share my um, CD with somebody, but what about my car? Maybe it's to share our time, our Christmas dinners, our New Year's Eves, our me time, our family time. Maybe it's to, it's to seek the inner world of somebody else and understand what they're going through and say, well, what can I do to help or what would God do in this situation? What have I got that would be of help here? And if this is something you really struggle with, then perhaps just start to think about and reflect on the times in your life when you've been either really joyful or really troubled. What did I, how did I feel when X happened? What helped me when this happened? I was just cruising through Facebook this morning, as you do, and um, saw a post from uh, somebody I used to know a long time ago. Uh, she's a worship leader um, in a church, and I've noticed from her Facebook post at the minute that she has been spending quite a bit of time over in Calais, at the uh, refugee camp in Calais, um, doing some stuff, um, just visiting there. I'm not exactly sure what she's doing. She's helping um, Helping out, helping out in some way. Anyway, she wrote this. She, she put this quote up on Facebook. It said, it's by somebody called Wolf. I don't know who that is. It's probably a really good theologian. Anyway, it says, authentic Christian worship is found in a rhythm of adoration and action. I thought, that's great. And then she put, desperately missing involvement in corporate adoration, but loving the action I'm involved in. Because she's over there right now, not in her church. And looking forward to a life rhythm of the two together, happening together, coming soon. Isn't that great? See, real love is about action. And uh, verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Well, I've avoided that one because it's just too difficult. I'm not going there. No, I'm not really. I'm teasing. I've avoided it so far because there's a whole section devoted to it, and that's called Loving Our Enemies. And the last passage that we're looking at this morning is bookended by these two verses. Verse 17, don't repay anyone evil for evil. And verse 21, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's a very clear... When, when they bookend something like that, it's like, hey, hey, listen, this is important. Don't be overcome, don't be overpowered by evil, but let your good overpower evil. So don't hate a person who has wronged you, because they just win that way. The only way to deal with somebody who's coming against you is to forgive them and to love them and to do good to them. I would add that it can be helpful to separate the evil from the evildoer. That's a good thing to do. There's some practical wisdom. Verse 18, don't avoid the hostile person. Go and live, go and try. If at all possible, do everything you can to live in peace with someone. Express love in words and actions. You know, bless them. Pray blessing on your enemies. I talked to um, John Mumford about this once. He's the guy who led the Vineyard Church for the last 25, 30 years. 
And um, he, he didn't set out to make any enemies, but there were some people who kind of considered him as an enemy, I suppose. That's quite a strong word, but pe- people who, for various reasons, he managed to hurt and upset through leadership decisions that he'd made. And people who came against him. I said, how do you deal with that, John? He said, I just keep praying every day, blessing on them, forgiveness, blessing, and I just keep praying that until, I, until, I, until it feels better. That's very simple and very practical and very biblical, but that's what it is. You know, forgive, and Paul says in verse 19, never look for revenge. It's not our, it's not our job to avenge those who've come against us or done wrong to us. That is not our job. God says, leave room for my wrath. Leave room for my wrath in that. But in the midst of that, just want to remind you, back to verse 9, love what's sincere, hate what is evil, and cling to what is good, that boundaries are okay. It's okay to have boundaries and say, this person who's done evil to me, I'm not going to repay them with evil, but it's okay to put a boundary and say, I don't need to be there anymore for a while. We don't need to get sucked into that stuff. How do we get the strength and the resources to live this way? There's only one answer. It's the gospel. The gospel makes this kind of living possible. The gospel reminds us of God's patience with us. There is no persecution or hardship or difficult situation. There is nothing that's happened that is so great that Paul makes an exception of it. There's nothing. You might say to me, oh yeah, yeah, but you don't know my situation, Nigel. You don't know about this that happened to me. You know, I sadly, happily get the privilege of hearing a lot of your stories. And some of them are really hard. And they're still going on. And I'm not in any way belittling them. And if you've suffered extreme abuse at the hands of somebody else, then I'm so sorry that happened. But there is nothing that's so deep that the gospel can't come to bear on this. The cross of Jesus is big enough for everything. And we can only live like this if we live, as it says right back at the start of chapter 12, in view of God's mercy. And that's why this stuff is so powerful. In view of God's mercy is a short phrase that sums up the whole of the first 11 chapters that we've spent the last 11, 12 weeks looking at. And so the gospel reminds us of God's patience with us. He's forgiven us so much. How much more can we forgive others? The gospel is how we think of ourselves with sober judgment. You see, we were lost sinners. We were no higher. We were no better than anyone else. We still aren't. We're wholly loved and justified by God. It's undeserved. We've got nothing to prove. There's nothing left to prove. I mean, the one who knows everything knows all about us. Why do we bother trying? Tim Keller says it like this, without the gospel, we need to convince ourselves and others of the value and worth. Sorry, I'm going to say that again. Without the gospel, we need to convince ourselves and others of our value and worth by associating with the most admirable persons possible. But in the gospel, we find that the most admirable person of all is already pleased to be our father and dwell with us. So we don't need to seek out the company of those who we get on well with. The one we love most, the one we most seek to be like, he lives in us. And so we're free to love the outsider or the difficult one or the awkward one. We're able to honour all who come 
And we're able to come alongside those who are marginalised. And all because of what Jesus did for us. This is the gospel in practical, everyday terms. It's tough, isn't it? But it's amazing, isn't it? And thus, Keller says, Christian love is the most unbiased thing possible. Both our knowledge of our sin and our knowledge of our acceptance destroy all prejudice and pride of race, class and vocation and anything else. The gospel is how this thing works. The gospel is how we sincerely and lovingly share in others' highs and lows. You know, our main joy is in Jesus. We might struggle to rejoice with somebody who's got this fantastic and amazing promotion, somebody we're close to, because we really, really want a promotion and we're just fed up in our job. And it's really difficult to kind of go, oh yeah, great, I'm so happy for you, when actually, do you get me? We might struggle, for example, with our best friend who's getting married and really super in love and it's all happening and here we are waiting for Mr. Wright or Mrs. Wright to come along. But our righteousness and our peace is in Jesus. It's not in our job success. It's not in our marriage ability. I didn't even know that was a word. (laughs) On the flip side, we might find it hard to mourn with somebody whose life experience we just don't care. We might find it hard to really empathise with someone who we feel superior to or someone who, to be honest, has just made some dumb choices in their life. When your friend's relationship is breaking up and they're on your doorstep crying their eyes out because they're all pain, pained and hurt and you said to them in the first place, you shouldn't have gone with that person. I told you it was wrong. <laughs> I told you it wasn't work good. You know, h- how do you do that? How do we do that? We do it because even though it was a bad idea and they ignored our advice, we've made some bad decisions. We've ignored our friend's advice and Jesus still loves us. Yeah? Have we, is, is, that, is that right? Do you get me? Is that fair? If we're not finding our satisfaction and our confidence for life and the future, and our death actually, in Christ, we look at the circumstances of our life for comfort. And then we'll need to deny how hard this life is. The gospel tells us, lastly, that there is a judge And that he can be trusted. And he will make all things right. And it is not our job to get even. He cares for his world. He will ensure justice happens. And we're free to leave room for his wrath. You know, in 1 Peter 2 it says this, uh, talking about Jesus. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. This is the gospel, friends, lived out practically in the nitty gritty of everyday life and people and relationships. And when we live like this, this is what it is to be a living sacrifice. This is what it is to be countercultural. You see, the wisdom of our culture says, oh, just find out what you need and, and then just go for it. Stay in a relationship if it works for you. But if it's not really working for you, just get out, move on. Our culture says that sacrifice is an unhealthy thing and a costly thing. Jesus says that sacrifice is the gospel. Psychologists say, oh, be good to yourself. 
make decisions. And I understand why they say that. And the trouble is, most people don't actually understand what sacrifice is all about. See, if you don't understand the gospel and sin and self-righteousness, then you can't tell the difference really between someone who's loving to get something or someone who's loving because they've been given something. Do you see? Do you see the difference? So this classic codependent behaviour is to use sacrificing yourself for somebody else as a way of making yourself feel valuable. You know, I don't feel acceptable in Jesus, so therefore I'll get that feeling of acceptability by loving another person. Making it, it's basically making an idol of that person. And therefore I'll put up with behaviour that perhaps isn't the best or isn't good. I'll put up with allowing myself even to be abused because that martyrdom that I experience will make me feel something worthy. It'll make me feel worthy. And the truth is, that feeling of acceptability... And worthiness can only and is only found in Jesus. That's why Paul's so clear about those boundaries. Love what is sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. It's really just not loving to allow the object of your love to sin against you. You see what I'm saying? And it may be for some of us that that's a challenge because actually that's what's going on at the minute. And if that's you, do you know what? We'd just love to pray with you. We'd just love to pray with you about that. I just want to sum up by reading you one more quote from Tim Keller. We are to love others at a cost to ourselves. Not to earn someone's love or God's love, but in view of the love that he has already lavished on us. The Bible makes much of Jesus' sacrificial love for us. He was stripped and killed in order to love us. And in view of that, we are to live as he did and love as he did. And if the way that we love one another comes at a cost to ourselves, well then we've started to know what Christ-like love really is. Why don't we stand together? Why don't we just um, be quiet for a few seconds and Holy Spirit, I pray that the truth of your word might come and where it isn't already doing so, reach down deep into the deepest parts of us And Holy Spirit, as we reflect on what we've heard, show us what it is that you want us to hear from you today. Holy Spirit, come. Shine your light on our hearts, on our lives. And where we need to respond to you. Give us the strength, the courage to do that. Show us, help us. Thank you, Lord. More of you. More of you. The Holy Spirit is already in the room and I can see that he's already resting on a number of people. And for some of you, for some of us, it's just that this truth that I've been talking about, this truth that's there in the Bible, the Bible says that God's word is like a two-edged sword. It cuts sharp. And for some of us, we've heard things this morning that have made us go, oh, oh. And if that is you, then I'd encourage you just to go with that. Explore what it is. Allow the Holy Spirit to search your heart. Don't back away from it just because it feels like a challenge. If the Lord is speaking to you, then let his truth speak to you. Let his truth penetrate. And for some of us, that's a challenge. 
Because some of what I've been talking about today, that's hard stuff. It's deep and it's close to our hearts and some of it is, it, it, it's emotional. Some of us are allowing people close to us to treat us in ways that aren't okay. And we're realising that the gospel allows us to stand up to that lovingly but truthfully. Some of us are realising that we're actually just not loving people the way Jesus loves them. And if that's you, just allow the Spirit to just to search over your heart. We welcome you, Holy Spirit. We welcome your work here. Um, I just had a picture of traffic lights and the light is on amber and I just feel there might be some who are thinking about making a decision that it's best just to wait until the lights change. And... um, just in the quietness, is there anybody else who feels like God's given them a word to share that's in, to encourage and build up the rest of us? If you have, we'd love to hear that. You can just call it out loudly from where you are or come down the front. The Lord is here. And there is time to just press into him to embrace what he's doing. If you sense that God was giving you a word and you don't want to share it yourself, you can come and tell Joe, and she'll share it for you. just had the phrase ruffled feathers and um, I felt like uh, that there was an experience that someone had gone through and they felt really upset and that their feathers had really been ruffled but that the Holy Spirit was here to just smooth things down and to just um, um, it's going to sound a bit silly just like like a chicken that's got enough flat but if, if the farmer picks it up and just holds its wings and calms it mm. The flap stops and and you know can put it down and just walk off calmly. And I just feel that the Holy Spirit's here to just bring that peace yeah. and to bring perspective, um, yeah. and to yeah. to just um, allow your feathers to be smoothed down. Thank you. That's great. So in a minute, I'm going to invite you to respond. And if there's anybody who wants to come. And just kind of respond to what God is saying or doing. There's a space here at the front. It's not that there's anything special or magic about this place. You can meet with God where you are, but sometimes taking a practical, physical step is a good way to respond to what you know the Lord is doing in your heart. So if that's you, why don't you start to just come out to this place and why don't I also have one or two other folks from the church who are going to come and pray for you. Come, come and stand in this place. Bless you. If, you. if you want to respond to what God's saying, if you know that he's talking to you today, bless you for your courage and your bravery. Just keep coming. We're just going to share a couple more words. Yeah. I had a picture earlier of um, leaves that were being um, stirred up in the wind. And um, it's like not really sure whether it's the wind of the Holy Spirit or the wind of stuff that's being stirred up in, in your heart. And um, I, as I waited um, to see what was going to happen, it was like the leaves started to settle, and they started to settle on other leaves. And um, this is a safe place, and the Holy Spirit is here. And if you're feeling stirred up inside and things are going on, allow, um, allow the Holy Spirit to come and into that situation and into his arms of love. That's wonderful. 
In the worship earlier, I um, felt the promise from Isaiah 12 that with joy you shall draw water from the wells of salvation. And I really feel that um, applies right now from all that Nigel's been saying because of the the truth and the foundation of the gospel, um, that we, we have access to living water, we have access to grace and mercy in time of need, and that this will be for your joy. Um, in healing there is often pain, pain comes first, and then the joy will come. Amen. I saw, I saw a blanket covering somebody, but the blanket was too short for them. And I felt that God was saying that his comfort comes when his comfort is all-encompassing. And that if you give him the old blanket, he'll give you a bigger blanket that will completely cover you with his love. Amen. Now I can see all over that the Lord is touching people. It's not just here at the front. But the Lord is ministering to people and his, his Holy Spirit is present, so... If that's you, just keep going with that. If you want to respond, there is still an opportunity to come out to the front. I'm just going to pray and close. The guys will continue to lead worship gently. If you want to just stay in the Lord's presence, you're more than welcome to do that. As I said to you, if he's talking to you, just go with that. Don't, don't, don't shut that down. Father, thank you for your presence here. Thank you for the truth of your gospel, for your amazing and incredible sacrificial love for us. Thank you that you call us and challenge us. And when you do that, you also give us the Holy Spirit and resources to to step into what you're calling us to. Thank you for your presence here. Come on. So one thing earlier, um, Jo started um, calling out some of the things that she felt God was going to do. And one of those was about backs. And... um, I've been plagued quite recently with a bit of a, uh, a back problem, so I put my hand up as invited, and one of the guys just came along with me and just started praying, and he played around the back, and I could feel warmth and stuff, stuff was going on, and I said, just, you know, you spot on money, he said, yeah, I know, God told me, it, it, it was my back, it was your back, and so I felt that healing, and so this just tells me that God knows for you exactly what you need what's going on Amen to that. and so yeah. whatever that need is maybe it's backs maybe it's something else don't go away without having that need met Amen to that. thanks John so again if that's you if you are whether you've had prayer today already or not if you are still experiencing any kind of back issue we would love to pray for you we'd love to do that right now just come around down to the front or just turn to the people around you say yes that's me Whatever God is doing, let's go with that. I just want to um, talk about a situation I went through a few months ago. I had severe back pain in my spine, L45-S1. Discogenic pain. I could hardly walk. I was like this. I couldn't move. And it was the most terrible pain I've ever felt in my life. I just thank Jesus so much because I had so many people praying for me, laying hands on me, and I was just vulnerable to say, this is the situation I'm in. This is the pain that I feel. But I trust in Jesus who heals today. And now I stand healed in the name of Jesus. I can walk, I can jump, I can move. And he is not, no, no weapon formed against me will prosper. And I just want to say, if you are struggling with any pain in the name of Jesus, it can leave right now. Come up here, right now. And let's just lay hands on you. 
and, and God will have his way and heal you. I am healed and I'm free. And I just want that for everybody. I love him so much. Thank Amen. you, Jesus. Bless you, mate. Bless you, mate. Thank you for what you're doing, Lord. Thank you for what you're doing, Father. Thank you for all that you're doing, Holy Spirit. We bless you. Come on, we need to pray for you, don't we?